Good morning. It's good to be with you. Um, for those who might not know, my name is Kevin Twitt. I've uh, been what we call pulpit supply for City Church and will be um, for much of the spring until the new pastor gets settled in. Um, we're going to start today a brief series on Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a, is a book that Christians and, and even Jewish uh, folks have struggled with how to interpret uh, for a long, long time. And I, I think it's actually one of the more helpful books to help us understand wisdom for how to live after the fall and brokenness have come into the world. It's a, it's a really important book to help us be honest about the mess that sin has really made of the world, a mess that affects believers and unbelievers, those who would call themselves Christians and those who are trying to figure out what Christianity is about. In some ways, I think one of the real barriers in our um, modern world is Christians who seem to give the impression that if you're a Christian and you love Jesus, that everything is rosy. Or that if you just had the right perspective, that everything would be great, that you just have to smile all the time about everything. And for a lot of people, they, they look at that and they feel like that's so dishonest. It seems um, probably not real. Um, I know even a lot of uh, people that have grown up in the church. You know, I, I, my full-time gig is a pastor with college students through uh, a ministry called RUF, which is our denomination's ministry to college students. I do that over at Belmont. And so many of the students that, that I interact with have grown up in Christian churches, but they've grown up in Christian churches where they either explicitly or at least implicitly have gotten the, the message that Christians who love Jesus, um, you know, don't have to moan and groan and, and um, you can kind of rise above those things, so to speak. And, and, and it's so unhelpful. It's so unhelpful for those who are trying to figure out what Christianity is really about. Um, Christianity does not promise that we will be able to avoid um, the struggles. As a matter of fact, the call to worship, Psalm 130, tells us, right? From the depths of woe, I cry to you. And I think when you read through the Psalms, you find that that is a pretty typical experience. As a matter of fact, the most common type of Psalm are these psalms of lament, these psalms of where are you, God, or why, or how long. And, and I think for a lot of people, that's really surprising because they've come to understand Christianity as, as a promise to not have to live in that place. I think Ecclesiastes is actually a, a really important book that will sober us. I don't think it's actually a directly what we might call evangelistic book. I think there are some who've seen it as this is Solomon telling you how he was a backslidden guy. He kind of forgot who God was, uh, but then he kind of came back to his senses and wrote this book to make sure that you don't, you know, lose your faith in God. And, and thus it's to be kind of an evangelistic, don't be like me kind of book. I don't think that's the point of it at all. But I do think it has an incredible effect on helping those outside of the faith and those inside of the church figure out what Christianity really is about. Um, and it really is a book that helps us learn <coughs> wisdom. How then shall we live? But as I said, it's a book that people have really struggled 
to understand. Um, I'm going to read here the first chapter. Now, I'm going to read out of the ESV because that's what we use at City Church. Uh, but even the first verse in the old King James, it said, vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. Um, and the ESV uses that word. There's an important Hebrew word, uh, hevel, that is a difficult word for translators. The NIV, New International Version, which is what I grew up on and the version I'm most familiar with, actually translates that word hevel meaningless meaningless. And so some of you may have heard it translated that way, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Uh, I, I'm going to tell you why I don't think that's very helpful and where I think it actually uh, involves a distortion of the book, but it does, I think, even help us as we're reading this first chapter, you may be thinking, how can a Christian who knows God, who knows Jesus, um, actually say things like this? It doesn't seem to fit together. And uh, that's part of what I want to lean into today and in this little series on Ecclesiastes. Um, sober wisdom for life in a frustrating world. Chapter 1. The words of the preacher. Now, that's a Hebrew word, koheleth. And you will find people that aren't sure if Solomon actually wrote this, Solomon the son of David, um, or if someone, a, an author, took that character. I believe Solomon wrote it. Um, but, uh, you know, that sometimes you'll, you'll hear people refer to the preacher of Koheleth rather than um, calling him Solomon. Anyway, the words of the preacher, Koheleth, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this is also but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Let me pray briefly and then we'll dig into this portion of God's holy word. Lord, we do thank you for this book of wisdom. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us, that you would teach us even now. Send your spirit to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, 
people have, have long struggled with this book. I mean, how can the Bible say everything is meaningless, as the NIV translation says in verse 1? Um, or, or how about this one? In chapter 9, verse 7, it says this, Go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it is now that God favors what you do. It sounds a bit like eat, drink, and be merry. That doesn't seem very Christian, right? So some of us have argued that maybe this book was written from the perspective of a person trying to make life work apart from God. Um, even those who would say, yes, Solomon wrote this book, would say, well, he wrote it when he was in a backslidden condition. After all, the Bible records that he kind of got off track. And so maybe he um, kind of comes back to his senses, so to speak, and then writes this book as a warning to others. Or maybe he just kind of takes on the role of an unbeliever um, and to see life through those eyes, right? Some have argued that there are multiple authors, that maybe an original um, version of this book existed that was written by a skeptic, and then Solomon kind of corrected it and sort of inserted kind of more um, correct theology to, to straighten out these uh, crazy statements, right? But, you know, none of these really work very well when you look at the whole book. For one thing, and this we're, we're going to focus on this more next week, the very ending of the book um, really keeps us from being able to say that the, this book is the reasonings of a skeptic or um, someone who's in a backslidden condition, because in chapter 12 it says that all the words of the preacher are upright and true. Not just some of them, all of the words of the preacher are upright and true. And so some have said, okay, well, yeah, but under the sun means like not living under God, but under the sun, like living like a natural person, um, an unspiritual person. That doesn't work either though. When you survey that theme of under the sun, you find that it really can't be life apart from God. There are places where it clearly means life under God and under the sun. And I'm going to explain a little bit as we go on, maybe a different way to understand that phrase, under the sun. I think a lot of our problem comes from reading this book and some of these statements and projecting certain philosophical ideas on them. For instance, you know, some people think it's kind of this existentialism, just this kind of cynicism, like life makes so, no sense, so therefore just kind of, you know, set your, set your face to the wind and, and, and just, you know, carry on the best you can. That's a philosophy that really comes much later than this book, actually. Uh, some have argued, well, maybe it's Epicureanism. Maybe you don't know that, that word, but that's the philosophy of eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But again, that's a philosophy that came way after this book was actually written. You know, verse 9, uh, I'll just point out, um, I think contributes to some of this, the, these views. Look at, look at what he says here. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It's been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Now, when you read that, you may think, well, then the best way to live is just to not care about anything. But the book doesn't say that. The book names honestly the struggle the frustration even, but it doesn't say, therefore, 
It doesn't matter how you live. Therefore, just make life work the best way that you can. As a matter of fact, when we see um, next week and then the third sermon that I'm going to do, you're going to see that the book, without denying the frustration and the reality, nonetheless says that we're still called to fear God and keep his commandments. For as the end of the book says, this is the whole duty of man. And maybe if you've been around Presbyterians, you've heard that uh, answer to this thing we call the Westminster Shorter Catechism, a thing written back in the 1600s after years of some of the best theologians getting together and wrestling with what does the Bible teach. Um, They came up with this Confession of Faith and also the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The first question you may have heard, what is the chief end? Of man what's the goal what's the purpose of mankind and maybe some of you know the answer to glorify God and enjoy him forever where does that come from it actually comes from Ecclesiastes from the end of this book but more on that next week all right so what is this book actually about well today we're going to look at the introduction but I think if anybody's ever really tried to read a book to understand what it's about, you probably have, have figured this out. And kids, if you haven't figured this out yet, this is there's a good little tip for you, no extra charge. The best way to get a handle on a book is to read the introduction, read the ending, and then see if there are any key themes that go throughout the book. And that's actually the best way to approach Ecclesiastes. So this week, we're going to look at the introduction. Next week, we're going to look at the ending of the book. And then... Uh, In the third sermon, I'm going to look at this key theme that comes throughout the book. All right, so back to this word, Havel. Havel, it's a key word. And as I said, meaningless, meaningless is not really the best translation. When you look through here, chapter 1, particularly verses, um, you know, 3, 5, 6, and 7, you get this sense that things never quite reach their conclusion. It's a little hard to see that in verse 4 and verse 5, right? The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. That doesn't seem to be a negative thing, just a statement of like the way things appear. Or verse 6, the wind blows to the south, goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit the wind returns. But verse 7, I think, makes it clear what is being expressed, the particular perspective that's being expressed here. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. That's key. The streams run into the sea, but the sea is never full. Verse 8, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. That means we can't even fully name it. Some of this, you just feel this sense of things are not the way they're supposed to be. The eye, verse 8 says, is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. This word havel actually uh, literally is a word for a vapor or a breath. And, And the key idea here in Ecclesiastes, why that word is used is this idea of frustration. Uh, we even have that, that image in our own language. Have you ever tried to sort of grab hold of the wind? It eludes your grasp. You can't contain it. You can't control it. Nonetheless, it is. And that's the, the sense here that it's frustrating. Um, the seas run into the sea, but the sea is never full. Things can never reach their goal. They never reach their goal, right? Life is frustrating. Things go on and on, but never seem to get anywhere. But there's another frustration, another way that that the frustration of life comes out in this 
book, and it's in chapter 3. You don't have to turn there, but I'll, I'll read this verse. It's an important verse. Um, it says this, God has also set eternity in the hearts of mankind, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So God has set eternity, this longing for more, in the hearts of all mankind, and yet they can't fathom, they can't fully understand or figure out what God has done from the beginning to the end, right? In other words, God has made us to want to understand, but we can't. It's a guy, Jay Stafford Wright, who wrote an excellent article called The Interpretation of Ecclesiastes, which if anybody wants a copy of that, I could, I could share one with you. You can reach out to me. Um, and he talks about how life has lost the key to itself. And yet we know that there's purpose and meaning, and yet whenever we try to figure out the particulars, it always seems to, to frustrate us. In other words, we know that God is sovereign over all things, and yet why did this happen? Or why did that happen? That's kind of the sense of what Ecclesiastes is talking about. And it says that this frustration is under the sun. Now, I told you that I would say something about that. Under the sun is not life apart from God, because actually, all of the earth is under the sun, and God is Lord over all things. As the great Dutch theologian and statesman Abraham Kuyper said one time, there is not a single square inch of this earth in which Jesus Christ does not say, mine. There's no sort of part of this world that's outside of his control. I know some have kind of bought into some bad theology that like the earth is, is Satan's, and then maybe one day God will come back and then he'll have control. That's not true. That's not biblical at all. All of the earth is under the sun, and it's under God's sovereignty, and yet it's not the way things should be. Listen to this, Ecclesiastes 8.15. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So God has actually given him these gifts and given him these days under the sun. So under the sun cannot be apart from God. We have to dig deeper to try to understand what's going on. And here's the key, I think, is to understand that Ecclesiastes is actually a commentary on Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 records the fall and particularly the curse that God gives to mankind. Um, this curse is a curse to frustration. And so when you see this word Havel, frustration, it connects back to Genesis chapter 3. You see Eve, the woman, is frustrated as a mother in childbirth. She's frustrated with extra pain, but also with the pain of bringing little sinners into a dark, dangerous world. See, her first child is named Cain, and this child, when she actually sees that the Lord has given her this child, in the Hebrew it says, Lo, or behold, the Lord has given me the man. Now, God had promised that her uh, child, the seed of the woman, would crush the head of the serpent. And she believes, I think from her statement there, she believes that Cain is the one who will crush the head of the serpent. Well, it doesn't work out that way at all. And by the time she has another child, she literally names him Hevel. 
In English, that comes over to able. But Eve literally names her child this key word in Ecclesiastes, Havel, frustration. I often think about this, you know, why do we, why do we have children? Is it naivete or is it faith? Why would you bring children into this dark and dangerous world? Maybe some of you have, have thought about that even this year. Why would you bring children into a pandemic? I know many people thought about that after 9-11. The idea of, of having children in a world that seemed profoundly different um, was one that I think rightly people would um, wrestle with, right? So she's cursed as frustration as a mother in childbirth. She's also cursed to frustration as a wife. Rather than this mutual relationship uh, of loving and serving together to glorify God and enjoy him forever, she's no longer going to be a helper, not in a demeaning sense. That word helper in Hebrew is actually a, a noble word. God refers to himself as Israel's helper, right? But now her desire for her husband is going to rule over her. And whether you take that as she's going to desire to dominate her husband or her desire for her husband will lead to her being dominated, and I think actually in the Hebrew both are intended, um, either way you take that, it's wrong. It's not right. It's not the way it was supposed to be. Where you had mutual love and support and encouragement, now you have one-upmanship going on in the relationship between the husband and the wife. So she's cursed in that way. The man is cursed to frustration in his work and in death. He tills the ground, but the ground wins, because ultimately he will return to dust. And then get this, in chapter 8 of Romans, Paul makes another connection for us. So you have Ecclesiastes as a commentary, a reflection on what the curse of frustration means, how does it work its way out into all of life, and then Paul quoting the Greek translation of Ecclesiastes, uses the same word when he talks about how the whole creation is subject to frustration. And he talks about how everything is groaning, right? That's not a new idea. Paul didn't just get that out of the blue. It actually is a reflection on the book of Ecclesiastes. So, frustration, right? And what's fascinating is that's in chapter 8 of Romans, where Paul talks about the creation is frustrated. Now, it's interesting. I've heard a lot of people um, say, and I think it's a little, uh, I don't, I don't want to say careless, but maybe they don't quite understand the nuances. I've heard people say often that the creation is fallen. The creation is actually not fallen. Mankind is fallen. The creation is frustrated. Because mankind, who were to serve as stewards who were to help bring out all the God-glorifying potential he'd built into this world, they're no longer filling that purpose. They're no longer serving in that way with joy. And thus, the creation itself is frustrated. And um, so, so, you know, that's, that's what's fascinating. So I said Romans 8. Here's the amazing thing. Romans 8 is one of the strongest passages in the Bible about the sovereignty of God. Right? Verse 28 in Romans 8 says, All things work for the good of those who love Jesus and are called according to his purposes. And that everything happens according to his plan. That's Ephesians 1.11. So the same Paul then says that the creation is frustrated and we're all groaning. Even the Holy Spirit is groaning. We still can't figure out 
why this happened and why this didn't work out the way we hoped. And I wonder, do I really have to try to connect the dots? I mean, haven't we all experienced that this year? Ecclesiastes is a book about how even when you try to make things better, you introduce new problems and new frustrations. You see that? What is crooked cannot be straightened. That's verse 15. But oh, we keep trying. Oh, we keep trying. You see, Ecclesiastes is not about different ways of trying to find life and meaning apart from God. It's how we try to escape the frustration of the fall, even though it can't be straightened. And Ecclesiastes says that we go after many schemes to do this. And the bulk of the book is an exploration of these many schemes. But again, you need to understand, these are not schemes of trying to make life work apart from God. They're schemes of tr excuse me, trying to make a world that is safe and controllable. Ecclesiastes verse 7, 29 says this, This only have I found. God made mankind upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. And again, as verse 15 of chapter 1, which we read, says, we can't straighten what is crooked, namely life after the fall. So let me talk just briefly about some of these schemes. The schemes really are idols. Maybe you've heard us talk about that idea. Idols are things that we worship as God substitutes. But here's the important thing to understand. They're not bad things. We make idols out of the good gifts that God has given us. And Ecclesiastes will talk a lot about the good gifts and about how we're even to enjoy these good gifts even in the midst of the frustration. That's week three of this series. Um, but the way to think about idols is to think about them as m sort of things we try to use to control life, to make life more tolerable, to make life more controllable and safe. Uh, I've even said this, you know, heard it said this way, that God has stamped everything with meaning. That's Psalm 19, that the whole creation declares God's glory. It's preaching God is glorious. And yet we try to take all the elements, all the stuff that God has made that's saying God is glorious, and we try to rewrite the meaning. So God has said, for instance, you know, sexuality is given that you might glorify God and enjoy him forever. And we try to make it into other things. We try and say other things with it. The problem, of course, is that you can't erase or efface the meaning that God has stamped into the creation. And the true meaning keeps pushing back. And life is about this push back between what God has said these things are for to glorify him and enjoy him forever and what we're trying to use them for, which is to say, I don't need you, God. I can take care of myself. Let me talk about these schemes just a little bit. Even in, the, uh, in this next chapter, um, uh, Ecclesiastes talks about the pursuit of pleasure and things to distract us from the frustration. One of my favorite quotes was by Woody Allen. He was asked years ago by Bob Costas. Some of you remember Bob Costas. Um, um, he hasn't just been a sports commentator, but he also for a while had a late night talk show, had Woody Allen on one time and asked him, Woody, what do you believe in? And Woody said, I believe in the power of distraction. I think a lot of us would say that's ultimately what we're believing in. Rather than letting life get us down, let's just kind of check out and stay entertained, stay distracted, right? 
Uh, in the last chap part of chapter one, um, another scheme is the pursuit of knowledge. The pursuit of knowledge. Uh, even theological knowledge, you see, can be used as a way to control our world and try to live, with, uh, live without frustration. Cynicism can be part of this. I want to see through everything so that I never get my hopes up, right? Uh, look at the very end of chapter 1, verse 16. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. He's not saying, therefore, don't seek knowledge. No, not at all. But he's saying, if you're seeking knowledge to, to never have vexation or frustration, if you think you can just figure out all the theological answers and have no mysteries or no frustrations at all, is not going to work. It's, lying, it's like trying to catch the wind in a bucket. Doesn't work, right? There's the pursuit of wealth. Um, and, and, and a sort of certain lifestyle, thinking that we can rise above it. The pursuit of art and beauty is talked about in this. He talks about how he assembled the greatest choirs ever known. And while at times art and beauty can sort of lift us maybe out of the, the drudgery, it ultimately will fail to satisfy. Ultimately. Wasn't it Huxley that said, um, even after, you know, all the, all the beauty after even Beethoven's symphonies, you know, we still say, is that it? Is that all? There's something, even the things that, that, that sort of touch us and give us a sense that there is more to life than the frustration increases the vexation and the frustration, right? The pursuit of power, um, even the pursuit of folly mentioned at the end of this. I pursued madness and folly. That's interesting. He doesn't mean he basically like checked out and just became an idiot. What he means is I decided I, I was really as a serious pursuit, like maybe the best way to live is to just like laugh at everything. I don't know if any of y'all were Seinfeld fans. Probably a few of you were. Maybe some of you are a little young, but maybe you've picked up on the show um, in, in recent times. I know a lot of people have um, gone back and, and um, binged on all kinds of old shows. But um, Seinfeld was famously uh, described by Jerry as a show about nothing. But think about it this way, like Jerry, the comic, is the one who basically doesn't really ever get so frustrated. He ultimately is able to kind of laugh at the foibles of life when all the other characters who just like care so much are just always continually frustrated. And in some ways, like there's this theme through the show that the best way to get through life is to not take it too seriously. Um, some have called postmodernism existentialism with a wink. In other words, life has no meaning, but don't worry about it. But even that doesn't really work. It doesn't really work. So these schemes don't work. They can't straighten what is crooked. And yet Ecclesiastes calls us, even in the midst of the frustration that attends everything we pursue, Ecclesiastes calls us to see life as it really is, frustrating after the fall, but at the same time, it tells us to find joy in life, even in the midst of the frustration. That verse that I quoted earlier, I commend joy. And a little later, the book says, I command joy. And we're going to talk about that the third week. But it's a key theme 
rather surprising to many people uh, that even in the midst of naming the frustration, honestly, this book calls us to enjoy the gifts that God has given. So we'll talk more about that. All right, last, last point. Why do we need this book? Why do we desperately need the wisdom of this book now more than ever? A couple things, a couple reflections. First, Ecclesiastes rebukes modern evangelicals' attempt to live in a safe, sanitized world. I've been part of this you know, church thing for a long time, and you see this theme over and over and over. Using faith to try to create a world of control, a world of safety, trying to kind of, kind of excise all the uncomfortable things from life, and even sometimes using faith as a way to do that. And, and, and it really does, it really does um, affect our children. It affects those who feel like it's not real, who feel like, man, I don't know if I could ever be a Christian, because Christians just seem to have this ability to pretend that everything is great when it's really not. And we should be deeply, um, I, I think, deeply concerned about that. If what people think it means to be a Christian is to be somebody who always looks on the sunny side of life, um, I think that's a problem. And I think it's not true to what an actual biblical view of the world should lead us to, okay? So Ecclesiastes basically rebukes us trying to pretend or to create a world uh, of, of safety and sanity, uh, or sanitized safe world, so to speak. But it also encourages us to be honest about the frustration of life, even for those who know and love Jesus. And again, I think one of the huge barriers um, for people outside of the church, understanding Christianity, is the way we often lie about what faith really feels like. We lie with our songs, we lie with our prayers, we lie with our books and our bumper stickers um, that, that pretend that if you just knew Jesus, everything would be great. Um, that's so unhelpful. It's so unhelpful. It's unhelpful for those people in the church. It's unhelpful for our children. It's unhelpful for those outside of the church. And I think Ecclesiastes really uh, encourages us to be honest about the frustration of life. It also connects us to real longings. Real longings. The kind that the advertisers don't really want stirred up. Like advertisers just want to stir up enough of a longing that they can present something that will satisfy. But Ecclesiastes stirs up longings that are deeper than that, so that we actually will never be satisfied. And that's a little scary. I know for myself, I would much prefer to live without longing than to live with unmet longings. But Ecclesiastes comes uh, to, to stir up longings that can't be met, even with the good gifts that God has given us. It also, I think, warns us from trying to explain away the testimony to the eternity that he's placed in the hearts of all people. Remember that verse in Ecclesiastes 3 says that God has set eternity in the hearts of all men, not just Christians. So all people have this longing for eternity, and sometimes they speak about it in profound ways. Sometimes they speak about the ache more powerfully than Christians do. And we don't have to explain that away. Ecclesiastes says that is built into the heart of all people. And sometimes we need to hear that uh, from others. We don't need to explain it away like, oh no, they're not Christians, so they can't really understand life. No, sometimes they speak of the ache more powerfully than we're willing to speak as Christians. 
Christians need to be sobered by Ecclesiastes. It's part of learning wisdom. We also need Ecclesiastes because it invites us to a profound connection to Jesus and his suffering. I'll talk a little bit more about this more explicitly next week. But listen, when Paul talks about the frustration in Romans 8, here's what we need to remember. Jesus is the one who groaned more than we ever will. And understand this, that the more you become like Jesus, the more you grow as a Christian, the more you will enter into the groaning going on in Romans 8. And that's something we need to say all the time. Because so many people think, you know, I don't know what the, <laughs> I don't understand how they can read the Gospels and think that being a mature Christian means you won't be groaning all the time. Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He's one who on the cross cries, my God, my God, why? And he knows why. See, that's the amazing thing. He knows the big picture, why, but he still feels the angst. Why this? Why now? Nonetheless, he submits to the sovereign plan of God that he knows is God's will. Jesus says, it's my meat and drink to do the will of my Father. But he also cries out, my God, my God, why? So to think that becoming more like Jesus means that you will rise above the suffering and the groaning, no, nothing could be further from the truth. And I, I think Christians need to think more about how growing as a Christian means growing um, more in the groaning over the things that God is groaning about. As a matter of fact, in, the, in Isaiah, God even speaks about himself as a pregnant woman screaming in the pains of childbirth. Is that the way you think of God today? Do you, when you think about the, the, the angst that we're feeling right now, do you feel that God is sort of up, up, sort of risen above it all? No. He actually says that until all things are made right, till Jesus comes back again and makes all things new, his posture is not sort of just with his eyes closed, smiling at the world like the Buddha is always pictured. No, Jesus is one who weeps over Jerusalem. God is one who says he's screaming like a woman in the pains of childbirth. And the spirit, Paul tells us in Romans 8, is groaning with groans too deep for words. Ecclesiastes invites us into understanding more of this God who would experience groaning. And there's deep mystery there. How can the God who is perfect and glorious, who's in control of all things, be a God who's screaming as in the pains of childbirth? And yet the Bible tells us that's exactly who he is. And Ecclesiastes invites us to meet him there. Finally, we need Ecclesiastes to remind us that we live in a frustrating world, but God gives us good gifts to enjoy in the midst of it. He gives good gifts that ease the suffering, but at the same time, the gifts increase the anguish and the sense that we're not home yet. And if we were together, this is where I would lead us to the table, because that's what the table is about, right? That God gives us this meal, that he meets us here, that we can feed on him by faith, and yet we never get enough. We're still hungry. We still are reminded that we, we need more. And that's the way it is with the gifts of God. They meet us, they give us joy in the midst of the frustration, but they always leave us hungry for more. And even the fact that we can't eat that meal together today 
is another reminder of the, of the way the world is and the way we live. And Christians are called to speak honestly about that and yet to live with hope. More on that next week. Let me pray for us. Lord, we do thank you that you um, give us wisdom, that you speak truthfully to us about what's actually going on, that you name these things that often elude our grasp, but that doesn't mean that it is easier. <laughs> and so we pray that you would help us, um, help us to look to Jesus, the one who groaned more than we ever will, and find a, a place of communion with him in the midst of the groaning. He was tempted in every way, yet without sin. He suffered in every way. Lord, he knows, he knows the groaning. And his groaning wasn't just to empathize with us, his groaning led to him putting death to death. And yet, Lord, we still live in between this death blow that he's given to death and the full consummation of all things. So help us, help us, meet us, be with us, not just as individuals, but even as a community, as we seek to care for one another and for our neighbors. Help us to be sobered by this book, but also to be encouraged that you speak truthfully, you don't tell us to pretend everything is fine, and Lord, you also understand more profoundly than maybe we've ever realized about the groaning and the brokenness. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.